some breaking news to tell you about here. You are looking at an investigation of Albuquerque's latest homicide, unfortunately. Police tell us they got called to a shooting on Cornell Drive Southeast. This is in the university. Tonight, many in the metro are on high alert, terrified that a killer or killers may strike again. Yeah, Tommy, we don't know who this vehicle belongs to, but ABD believes it is tied to the recent shootings that have killed four members of the Muslim community. And they are calling on the public to help locate this car. The first murder police say was Mohammed Zahir Amani, then three in the last 12 days, including Aftab Hussein and Mohammed Afzal Hussein. We are also increasing our air support. Now that we have information about a vehicle of interest. President Joe Biden, he tweeted this this morning, saying he is angered and saddened by the horrific killings and his prayers are with the victims' families. He says these hateful attacks have no place in America. We arrested 51-year-old Mohammed Saeed and charged him for the murder of two Muslim men in our community. The story we brought you as breaking news yesterday and this afternoon, Mohammed Saeed will make his first court appearance on murder charges. And this is Saeed's latest mugshot, charged with the murder of Aftab Hussein on July 26th and the murder of Mohammed Afzal Hussein on August 1st. Police say Saeed is their primary suspect in the other murders of Naeem Hussein and Mohammed Zahir Ahmadi, but he's just not charged in those cases yet. I'm Damian Willis, and this is The Reporter's Notebook from the Las Cruces Sun News a podcast in which we attempt to pull back the curtain on our reporting process while diving deeper into some of the biggest stories of the week. In this week's episode, we're talking to Justin Garcia, who covers public safety for the Las Cruces Sun News. Justin recently traveled to Albuquerque in the wake of the killings of several Muslim men, which set the entire community on edge. Muslims in Albuquerque were fearful of an Islamophobic serial killer after four people were murdered over the span of several months. But the reality of what happened was much more complicated and harder to comprehend. On August 9th, police arrested 51-year-old Muhammad Syed, a Muslim and known community member. Syed was charged in two killings, and authorities say they're gathering evidence to charge him and the two others. Theories abound about the alleged killer's motivations. None have yet been confirmed. The married father of six has denied involvement in the killings. Albuquerque police say an interpersonal conflict may have led to the shootings and said the suspect appeared to know several of the victims. Authorities were examining whether he may have been motivated by religious zeal, such as the political and religious divides between Sunni and Shiite Muslims that underlie modern conflict in the Middle East. But those in the community have rejected such divides and refused to be defined by them. Now, the community is working to move forward, both with grieving over the deaths and processing why a member of their community could have done this. Justin was kind enough to join us this week to discuss what he learned during his time in Albuquerque. First, Justin, thanks for taking the time to talk to us today. Yeah, absolutely. 
Justin, can we start with you kind of telling me a little bit about how this story came about? When did you learn you'd be going to Albuquerque to report on this? Yeah, so this was one of those, it was like a seven o'clock, 7 a.m. morning phone call that said, hey, I hope you're not doing anything today because we need you to go to Albuquerque. The day before, we had kind of been talking this would have been Tuesday, August 9th, and there was some conversation in the afternoon saying, oh, you know, should we send somebody up? What's, you know, kind of what's going on up there? Um, and at this point, I believe while we were having these conversations, the man who would eventually be charged with two of the four murders was arrested or his I should say his his arrest was announced publicly. And then so that kind of was was OK. Well, maybe we shouldn't send somebody up. But Wednesday morning, they they gave me a call and said, hey, why don't you go ahead and drive up? So I did. And yeah, started reporting basically as soon as I got there at around 12 or 1 o'clock. Wow. Kind of recapping this story, let's start at the very beginning. The first killing was in November. That's when police say Muhammad Zahir Ahmadi, who was 62, was fatally shot outside of his restaurant. Clearly, at that point, there wasn't any indication of a pattern. Yeah, yeah, that's right, because there had only been the one killing. And 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 again, Albuquerque is kind of a world away for us, as everyone listening knows. But there had only been the one killing. And I don't think there was, like you said, any indication that more people were kind of on the list, I guess, so to speak. Right. And, you know, a... <laughs> With with the state that Albuquerque has been in and, and the struggles that they've been having with uh, crime and specifically violent crime in the past couple of years, the past few years, perhaps, you know, th this could have been just like any other murder that happens sometimes three or four or five times a, a night. Yeah, I mean, for context, you know, it's. I believe um, in 2021, the FBI reported that uh, there were 117 homicides in Albuquerque. So, yeah, when you kind of put it in that context, it's it's easy to sort of get lost in the noise of all of those cases. Sure. For sure. comparison, for comparison, you know, down here in Las Cruces, it's we have a, a homicide record. If we get above like 10, it's it's a really big deal. And obviously, Albuquerque is quite a bit bigger, but um you know, but, it's five uh, times bigger, but their homicide rate is 10 times. So, right. Exactly. Exactly. And there was no reason to think that there were any distinguishing characteristics about the murder of Muhammad Zahir Ahmadi as it happened. And then things went quiet, at least as far as this spree goes, if, if you want to characterize it that way there wasn't another shooting until this summer and mm -hmm. that's when things changed within yep. two weeks three others were killed in ambush style shootings uh first was Aftab hussein who was 41 that was on july 26th then muhammad afzal hussein who was 27 uh that was august 1st and Naeem Hussein, who was 25 on August 5th. At what point during those two weeks did alarm bells start going off? And I guess that's a twofold question. One would be for 
uh, authorities, and the other would be for the Muslim community. Right. Well, I think, uh, you know, this is kind of one of those instances in which the, the, the adage, um, two's a coincidence, three's a pattern, really applied. I think after Muhammad Afzal Hussein was killed, you know, I think it was, it was pretty clear that, that something, something unusual was going on. And, um, but I think for the community, what, what community leaders told me, it's that when, um, the fourth victim was killed, that's really kind of when fear really set in across the community, I think. Um, we're all um, deflated, uh, horrified, uh, tired. People are scared. They're looking for answers. Uh, they want more answers. We can't provide answers. Uh, APD and law enforcement are doing the best they can, but the details are thin. Uh, so there is some growing frustration with regards to uh, the investigation. He says family members of those who have been killed are afraid that they could be next. People are also considering moving out of Albuquerque as a result of this. The fourth victim was killed the same uh, either the same night or, or the early morning after a funeral was held for uh, the two victims who had been killed in, in July and the beginning of August. And uh, the fourth victim, as many as many people told me, uh, attended that funeral and spoke with people. And, and, and again, it's a fairly, you know, just for reference, the, especially among the, the folks who are religious, the, the Islamic community of Albuquerque is fairly tight knit. If anyone, anyone who's ever lived in like a small town of like a thousand, you know, a thousand to 5,000 people knows exactly what I'm talking about. Everyone kind of knows everyone. And if you don't know everyone, you know, somebody who knows everyone. Right. And that the, <laughs> the combination of, of those, that factor along with, you know, everyone acknowledging, okay, three people have been killed. Something's clearly going on here. And then, oh, this guy that we just all saw yesterday was, was just murdered. That's when real thing, things really started to, to kind of, and I think it started to really sink in that something was going on. And that would have been on August, uh, I believe it was the early morning of August 6th. How did it impact the day-to-day activities of Muslims in Albuquerque? Most people stayed inside and they stayed in their homes and they just tried to avoid being out and being vulnerable. Obviously, you know, some people still went to work and still sent their kids to school. But for, for many, many people that, that uh, we talked to, many people just didn't do that. They kept their kids home from school. They stayed inside, did everything they could to just avoid being out in the open. And what did that mean for, you know, uh, going to the mosque and, and practicing practicing their faith? Well, so you know, in a similar way that kind of the, the main traditions around prayer in, in most Christian religions occur on Sunday, uh, in, in most, uh, Islamic religions that occurs on Friday. So when that fear really set in, that would have been Saturday morning and, and stretching into, you know, August 6th, 7th, 8th, 9th, um, and then a little bit into the 10th. When, but when the arrest was, was made. Right. When the arrest was made. And so that kind of, I think, you know, kind of beginning the week with, with that sort of fear. And then by the end of the week, several imams that we talked to said that people had kind of started to 
uh, let out a sigh of relief by the time Friday prayer came around on August 12th. Right. And that's that's also kind of when the healing begins. And, and we'll certainly get to that later. Um, police um, received multiple tips about the suspect and a vehicle that authorities say was spotted driving from one of the shootings. Muhammad Syed, who is a native of Afghanistan. Police say he immigrated to the U.S. about five years ago. He was taken into custody August 8th after a traffic stop near Santa Rosa, more than 100 miles away from his southeast Albuquerque home. At the time, I believe he said he was trying to flee the violence, the the targeted violence in Albuquerque and wanted to move his family to Houston. I would imagine that word of his arrest traveled fast through the Muslim community. What was the response? Well, yeah, like you said, I mean, word traveled fast, not not just across the the Islamic community, but really across the the entire uh, the entire kind of uh, Albuquerque community and, and everyone else across the country who I think was paying attention to this. Sure. It was, it was the, very much national news. Yeah. At that point, absolutely. It was so national and this is rare for, <laughs> this is rare for New Mexico. It was so national news that the, you know, the Washington post and the, and the New York times did push notifications about Albuquerque, which is, which is not common. But, uh, I think the community from what people told me, the community was relieved. You know, I, I think it was very uh, up to that point. There was this question of whether or not these were this was a um, there were some serious questions about whether or not this was a hate crime or or this was targeting people for their faith. Because, you know, I mean, you looked at the at the set of victims. It was all all men who who were from a you know a pretty wide range of, of backgrounds and ethnicities, but all who had practiced. Uh, Islam in Albuquerque and were kind of lived in the same kind of general area of Albuquerque, which is for those not familiar, the the kind of Southeast portion near, near and around the university is is often sort of where folks from, from folks from across the the country and the, and the world tend to find themselves when they're in Albuquerque. Sure. Um, And it's very, Having lived in Albuquerque for five years or so, it's very diverse because you've got you've got you've got so many so much of the the university personnel, the students, both Americans and international students, professors of all different backgrounds living side by side. And it's it's also not in my personal experience, not a particularly high crime area. It's there's generally uh, a feeling of safety, except for one at one particular Smith's I can think of. Uh, <laughs> uh, no one's going to get that. No, only the Albuquerque listeners will get that joke. <laughs> it's on Yale. Uh, stay away. Uh <clears throat> Uh, I digress, but it really is like it's an interesting neighborhood and a very diverse neighborhood. And uh, if I had to pick a spot on Central to be hanging out, it would it that would be high atop the list. Yeah, I mean it, it's it's a 
you know, I'm speaking from personal experience here. It's, it's where I went to college. It's, I, I lived there for a while. As did I. In this neighbor- it's, it's a very, like you said, it's a very diverse place. The university brings in a lot of people from across the, across the world and across the country. And, and it's that diversity is expressed in a, a wide range of people and, and cultures. And, and then that of course is expressed through different restaurants and, and social gatherings. And so it's, it's got a really, it's got a really cool melting pot kind of feel to it, that area of town. And I think, and again, it's, it's a, I, I think that's one of the things that made this, like you said, so shocking was that I think it very much felt like, oh, and, and I should should point out the, the 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 largest mosque in Albuquerque, the Islamic Center of New Mexico, is also located in this area. And that's right. I think it really, especially for folks in in that part of town, I think it really felt like a attack on what makes that part of town and, and Albuquerque more generally very beautiful and, and very interesting. Right. Uh, of course, in, in reality, the, you know, what police believe is, is that it, it wasn't so much of a hate crime necessarily as it was something more personal that the, the defendant had a variety of, of interpersonal conflicts with, with each of these men and, and, or, believed he had conflicts with these men. There, there's some question about whether or not he knew some of them. Or, yeah. The, or the, what the deal is, but the motive is still very much up in the air. Yeah. It has since come out that Syed has demonstrated a history of violence since arriving from Afghanistan five years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. There's a number of police reports and, and previous accusations and, and criminal charges involving domestic violence, um, largely, uh, perpetrated uh, allegedly against his his wife and his family. Saeed does have a criminal history. We tracked down criminal complaints from domestic violence and battery charges dating back to 2017. But in each case, the charges were dropped. We should again note that Syed has only been charged with the two most recent killings. Since his arrest, an Albuquerque judge has ordered him to be held without bail until trial. So amid a wave of homicide cases in the Duke City, this man is tied to four of the most high-profile ones that caught national attention. Today, a judge decided to keep Mohammed Saeed in jail until his trial. These homicides have traumatized Albuquerque's Muslim community. And Saeed is only charged with two homicides, but police still suspect he's linked to two others. Tell us about the time you spent in Albuquerque and what you learned while you were there. Yeah, so it was definitely a really interesting experience. Um, as I mentioned before, I, I lived in Albuquerque for most of my life. And, you know, so I, I was familiar. You know, I knew that there was a, a pretty sizable enclave of, of folks from the Middle East and folks from Central Asia and all, all practicing the practicing the Islamic faith. And I had, you know, growing up, I had several friends who I either worked with or went to school with who considered themselves Muslims, uh, including actually the third victim, right. Muhammad Afsal Hussein, who was the, he, he was, um, he was a UNM student at the same time I was a UNM student. And while I was working at the student newspaper, he ran a successful campaign to become the graduate student president. So I, I covered his election and I covered his campaign and I covered some of the stuff he did as, as president. And so 
you know, he and I kind of had a, after, after college, he and I kind of had a relationship somewhere in between friend and source. So yeah, going up there, it, it was definitely a, it was definitely an interesting experience because <laughs> it was very much returning to familiar territory for me. First thing we did when we went up there was we, we were scheduled to speak to uh, one of the, one of the, the imams in town. And unfortunately we, we missed him. He had a, a thing that he had to, to get to involving his family, but it ended up working out because we just kind of decided, all right, well, let's just drive around and find some other, uh, let's just drive around to, to another mosque and, and, you know, try to talk to who we can talk to. And so we met some, met some good folks and sets up some interviews and all that. And over the next few days, we, um, just kind of continued that process of just trying to say, okay, well, where is everybody right now? And, and how do we talk to them? We went to, let's see, Thursday morning, we went to an interfaith breakfast that the, the media weren't invited to, <laughs> but we decided, well, you know, it's in a public facility. It was in the Albuquerque Convention Center. So we'll just go and, and we'll see what happens. And uh, so we went and, and we did an interview with the mayor and we spoke to some more moms and, and got some more interviews set up. And Thursday afternoon, we drove all the way up to Española, which is about 90, 90 minutes north of uh, Albuquerque and just north of Santa Fe. And the reason we went up there is because one of the victims, Mohammed Afzal Hussein, was a city planner for Española. And they were holding a, a remembrance for him. And so that was another space where we got to do more interviews, talk to more people. Uh, we got to talk to Afzal's brother, who's been very vocal throughout this whole process. And yeah, it was a real, it, it was a very beautiful ceremony. It was really kind of, I think in these kind of extremely senseless tragedies, um, one of the things that brings a lot of comfort and meaning is to see people sort of still be willing to gather and, and celebrate a person's life. Even, even, even in the instance in which I think everyone agrees that uh, Muhammad Afzal was was really a, a rising star in, in not only his community, but in New Mexico. Um, State Auditor Brian Colon, who said he considered Afzal to be a, a mentee, he joked he, he, was, he was kind of the master of ceremonies of this whole thing. And he joked with some of the other folks up there. He said, you know, I always, I always thought that uh, Muhammad would end up being a, a congressman. We, <laughs> and, and I, you know, my experience is that I, I, I could see it that, that he was one of those guys who definitely has a, you know, he puts his mind to something and he, he didn't never let go of it. Having, having covered his, uh, his campaign in college and he never actually got a chance to move up to Española, right? Yeah, that's right. He was in the process of finding a place and, and, you know, Brian Cologne talked about him, you know, finding a nice little spot on the, on the river up there and, and wanting to kind of host gatherings between different people and stuff. And, but uh, yeah, like you said, he never, never had the chance. And then uh, after that was over, you returned back to Albuquerque. Yep. That's right. Returned back to Albuquerque, did a couple more interviews, fell asleep in a hotel and did it all again the next day. (laughs) (laughs) And then Friday was kind of our last day of reporting up there before we had to come back down South. And the big thing we did on Friday, other than kind of just, you know, trying to get our head straight and writing all this stuff down. Big thing we did on Friday was we went to a prayer service at the Islamic Center of New Mexico. And it was really beautiful. It, it was, you know, I mean, my understanding was that it was, it had an attendance that was 
higher than normal, but not necessarily extremely higher than normal. And the, uh, the Imam who was talking, he gave a, a really beautiful, a really beautiful sermon about, um, you know, he talked a lot about this idea of faith as a unifying force, right? Cause I think, you know, I, I'm not sure how familiar our listeners are with, with Islam, but it, it very much is a world religion in the same way that Christianity is a world religion. There's, there's a huge number of, of ethnicities and there's a huge number of people with ethnic backgrounds that consider themselves to be Muslim. And, you know, anyone from, from Morocco to Pakistan can sort of like has, has sort of directly it lives in this Albuquerque community. And it's not really, there's not necessarily sort of like, there are like pluralities of different ethnic groups, but for the most part, it's, it's hugely diverse, right? There are folks from Bangladesh, there are folks from Pakistan, there are folks from Afghanistan, there are folks from Egypt, there are folks from Iraq, there are folks from Turkey and, and Morocco and Libya. And just, just like a huge, huge ethnically diverse diaspora. And the Imam talked a lot about this idea of unity over uniformity. And that's a direct quote from him. And I don't know, it was, it was a very nice way to sort of tie up, at least, you know, from my perspective and my reporting, I thought it was a very beautiful way to tie up the whole, the whole experience. So, you know, we talk, you know, if anyone who pays attention to kind of international politics, you, you hear about this concept of the Sunni-Shia divide. Right. And, you know, w- without getting into the centuries of history and conflict and, you know, the Ottomans, <laughs> without kind of getting, <laughs> without getting into no, all of no that. No need to go back to the Ottoman Empire. <laughs> without getting into all that, the, you know, the long story short is that the, this idea of a Sunni-Shia divide is kind of used as this political wedge to separate populations and justify war through sort of these quasi-ideological you know, differences. And, and of course, in reality, it's, you know, the reason people commit violence against one another is often much more, much more personal or much more regional than it is sort of ideological or whatever. And but I want to, I just want to jump in here real fast to point out that that is one of the early theories that was floated that it would, that what drove these shootings was actually sectarian violence that the uh, suspect's daughter had married someone, was dating someone from a, a different sect, had run off to another state and gotten married. And th- this, this entire narrative started to unfold. And I've heard people in the Albuquerque Islamic community quick to shut that down. They they do not want that given more oxygen because generally speaking, their belief is that it's nonsense and that there was most likely something deeper that drove these acts of violence. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Something more personal. And, and, and the police certainly have, uh, the police certainly seem to concur with that, that point of view, that it was much more of a personal thing than it was any kind of religious or ideological separation. But yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, it was, it it was a very beautiful, it was a very beautiful prayer and, and yeah, by the end of it, Friday rolls around, we drive home, do several rounds of editing (laughs) with several different editors 
and then it ends up in USA Today on Tuesday or Wednesday. On the front page. That's what they say. That's what they tell me. <laughs> Congratulations. That's uh, wow, thanks. That's that's kind of a, a rare feat for uh, for someone from Las Cruces. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, it's always one of those things where it's like, I, I think, you know, just talking about the story as a story, I, I really wish I could have had more time on it. I, I think especially the, the two days that I, I, or the two and a half days that I spent up in Albuquerque talking to people, it was really clear that this community is really complicated and diverse and just teeming with life and experience in a way that in a really beautiful way. And I remember, I remember I sat down and wrote my, I started, I sat down and started writing my story and I thought, man, I just will not be able to fully capture this. And so it's one of those where it's like, I'm, I'm glad that it, it, I'm glad that I was able to write it. I wish I could have had another month, (laughs) but that's, that's, that's the newspaper business, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. So often we do beyond you, you spoke to this some when talking about the Friday service that you attended. What has the healing process been like for those in the community? I think the healing, it's complicated, right? Because, you know, in some, in some respects, the healing process had just begun by the time that I left. And from what folks said, I, I think the healing process was going to be about moving on and sort of reaffirming these commitments to, as I said, unity over uniformity. And, you know, just, just that sort of, that idea, I think for a lot of people, you know, there was, you know, as we talked about before, because there was so much uncertainty at the start of this thing. And because, you know, we do live in a world where people commit acts of of racist violence uh, on a far more regular basis than I think anyone would be comfortable with. I think that really shook people to their, to their core, um, and then to sort of find out that actually in this case, it was something very different, I think was, you know, it's one of those, like, I don't know, it's one of those things. I, I, I'm not a, I'm not a sociologist or a psychologist, so I can't really speak on what, what that means for people, but I know it was probably impactful. And I know that it probably like is something that is something that for many people will, uh, they'll think about for a long time. One of the questions I tried to ask uh, a lot was, was do you, you know, either leader of the community or, or member of this community, do you feel like this experience was a critical juncture? And every single time I asked that question, the person said, yes, that they thought there was, you know, there was that there was a time before this happened and there was a time after this happened. So, you know, we'll see what that means for, for folks in that community in the, in the near and distant future. But one of the things that the faith leaders and, and city leaders wanted to impress on me as I asked them was that they all felt that there was a, they all felt that one positive from this was that the Islamic community and the city of Albuquerque as an institution had grown closer and had grown tighter. Right, right. And they worked, the imams particularly, worked so closely throughout the spree with the mayor's office, with um, District Attorney Raul Torres's office, Chief Harold Medina, they were in constant communication. And I can see how this could build community relations moving forward in a very beneficial way. Yeah. Yeah. Because like you said, it establishes those lines of communication. It builds rapport, does all the things. 
so I, I that that seems to be something that people were were you know a silver lining so to speak. One thing we haven't mentioned is that Muhammad Syed's 21-year-old son, Shaheen Syed, has been arrested on federal firearms charges for allegedly providing a false address on a form when purchasing a gun last year. This document federal prosecutors filed was a motion to keep Shaheen Syed, who also goes by my wand, in jail ahead of his trial. Now, we know he's already locked up right now for lying about his address while buying a gun. Prosecutors argue he's a danger to the community and needs to stay behind bars. Now, in this motion, they said that he's a serial liar who could easily flee the country and has a propensity for violence. He is also being held pending trial and is being investigated for having been more involved in these shootings. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's one of the one of the many threads here that, that continues to be kind of pulled at and, and explored. And I think as I understand it, just from the news coverage that that I've seen and read, is police are looking really closely at his cell phone data, particularly at the time of the shootings, to kind of see where he was during those shootings and if if it coincides with uh, his father's location. Court documents cite cell phone tower data from that day and time that shows Muhammad and Shaheen made quick calls to each other immediately before and after the shooting. It says, quote, there appears to be no logical reason for the defendant to have just happened to have been in the vicinity of the murder scene so shortly after Mr. Hussein was murdered. What do you want to add, Justin, that we haven't already talked about you know i i just think i think it's this this really interesting piece about albuquerque albuquerque is by no means a perfect city and i I don't i don't know anyone outside of government who would say that (laughs) but there are one of the really beautiful pieces about that town is that it, it has all of these different communities in it and you know i'm very grateful that i had the opportunity to to sort of explore and 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 profile one of these communities and you know even even though it was in the light of this terrible tragedy it, it was it's truly one of the the kind of most um, i would say most impressive things even even across the state is that here you have in albuquerque which is a fairly unassuming mid-sized city with you know that's got problems involving crime and and other things there you have this really beautiful thing i i hope that people have a chance to to experience that space in, in a similar way that I did and, and you know, approach it with tolerance and, and understanding because it's, it's a very rewarding experience. And I think you were able to share that beauty, the beauty of this community with a national audience, which, you know, there's a lot of value in that. Yeah, thanks. I, I hope so, too. I hope that I hope that people picked up on that. Justin, thank you, as always, for your time today. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Reporter's Notebook. We also have a newsletter sharing reporters' stories about, well, about how we report stories. You can find all of our stories and the rest of our reporting in the Las Cruces Sun News. A huge thanks goes out to Justin for joining us this week. You can read Justin's reporting in the Las Cruces Sun News. Also, you can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, and many of the places you find your favorite podcasts. This has been the Reporter's Notebook from the Las Cruces Sun News. 
I'm your host, Damian Willis. This week's podcast was written and produced by me. Thanks to KOB4 in Albuquerque for the additional audio heard in this episode. You can also find all our local reporting brought to you daily by reporters who live and work in Las Cruces at www.lcsun-news.com. For all of us at the Sun News, thank you for the privilege of your time.